Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. You'll hear Mayor Dwayne Foreman from Gillum, Manitoba, on the pursuit of uh, Briar Schmigelski and Cam McLeod. Also, the mayor of Port Alberni, British Columbia, Sherry Minions, and that, of course, is where the two individuals came from. What about survival in the bush near Gillum, Manitoba? Sherman Kong is the founder and president of Maple Leaf Survival in Winnipeg. We spoke with him. And Brian Peckford, the former premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, had a lot to say about the lack of communication from police. That's also something I spoke about with Scott York, former Crown Attorney. That more on the podcast. The RCMP search continues for Briar Schmigelski and Cam McLeod, charged with one murder, suspected of two more, as you know. And I just tweeted out, and really it's uh, it would be very helpful if the RCMP were more forthcoming with information, if they held more news conferences and provided more flow of information to Canadians, folks are anxious. Even if you don't have a lot to say, just provide what you have on a continuing basis. It creates a better atmosphere. We need information. We need to know what's going on, how many tips are being offered. Is, how's the RCMP following up on what they're hearing from Canadians? We have Dwayne Foreman with us, the mayor of uh, Gillum, Manitoba. Mr. Mayor, thank you very much for taking the time. How are you doing? I'm doing good. And yourself? Well, I'm fine, but we're concerned about you and we're concerned about your community uh, and how life has changed for all of you. Yeah, life has definitely changed within the community for sure. Everything that's been going on for sure. Are you getting uh, regular information and regular updates from the RCMP yourself? Uh, about three times a day, I, I'm giving updates by the by the RCMP. Yeah. And are you getting what you require? Oh, absolutely. They're keeping me abreast with the information that's uh, uh, relevant. What's occupied your time most, Mr. Mayor? Uh, definitely uh, uh, the reporters. People like me, right? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, Canadians are very much invested in this, and we. We know uh, when we assume that these two individuals are more than likely still in in your in the area of your community, and we want to know that they're going to be uh, apprehended, and and you'll all be able to get back to your lives. Uh, that's definitely the hope. That's definitely the hope. Yeah. What's the sand? Sorry, go ahead. No, just uh, I agree with you. Hopefully soon. What's the sense in uh, among the people of Gillum? Do you think that they are still in the general area, that they're in the bush close to the community, or do you do you do you as a community have a sense that they're gone? Uh, there's mixed emotions between everybody. Some people feel that they're still in the area, and other people uh, feel that they might have gotten away somehow. Yeah. Let me ask you, uh, how long uh, you think you're you're very familiar with the area? You're all outdoors people, I would imagine. Um, how long would an experienced outdoor person without proper protective gear and food and water survive in the wilderness area surrounding Gillum? Uh, speaking to one of my uh, uh, local friends with the Fox Lake First Creek Nation, uh, he's well experienced with the outdoors. And uh, even he admitted that uh, without proper... Um, 
shelter, heat, uh, and clothing and, and preparation. Uh, maybe a week, I'd say. And we're getting close to that. Oh, absolutely. Are, are any members of the community guiding police in the wilderness searches? Yes, actually, there are some Fox Lake members and local members of the community that are, are doing their best to, to help. And what are they telling you? Do they have any idea? Have, you, have they seen anything? Have they heard anything? Are there any signs that they've seen that may suggest that uh, these two individuals are actually where they are suspected to be? I have no information on that. They haven't updated me on any sightings or anything, no. Yeah, what's your sense tell you? Do you think they're still in the area? Um, myself, I want to believe that the RCMP know their job and they believe they're in the area, so I'm I'm going to believe that they're in the area. Now, Mayor Foreman, I thank you for talking to us. I, I understand that you're all under a lot of stress, and you this is not something that you ever expected to happen to your community and in your community. And I do hope that you're able to get back to your regular lives and enjoy your lives and enjoy your summer very quickly. I appreciate that very much. Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. Thank you for the time. Have a great day. You too. Dwayne Foreman, the mayor of Gullum. That's, uh, it's easy to understand, right? Small community, maybe a thousand people, and suddenly the whole country descends on them, and half the world descends on them, because this is a, an international story. In uh, Port Alberni, British Columbia, Mayor Sherry Minions joins us, and of course, Port Alberni is where the two individuals, uh, Schmigelski and McLeod, called home. Mayor Minions, thank you very much uh, for the time. Not the reason that you want... Port Alberni in the news. Is is the shock in your community growing as the police and the military manhunt for these two individuals expands? Yeah, I mean, as you can imagine, it's been a reasonably challengeable time in the community. Um, we are not certainly as small as, as Gillum and going through something very different, but um, there's a lot of worry in the community, people not understanding what's going on, how to deal with it, um, and just a lot of concern for what the people in Gillum are going through, because I think we're really, you know, relating to it. And what are you doing as a, as a municipal administration to keep uh, the lines of communication open with, the, with your residents? We are trying to, um, you know, we're trying to update the community and put out whatever information, um, of course, that we have. Um, but at the same time, you know, we're not, um, we're obviously not the lead on this. The investigation isn't happening in our community. Right. Um, so there's pretty limited information that we're able to share. Um, so we're really just acting as a, a, as a resource for people in the community who are struggling with this, I would say. We're finding out things now about the teens, which were warning flags like, online Nazi referencing and purchases of Nazi insignia, and conversations by Briar Schmigelski, which concerned his peers. What does that speak to as far as you're concerned? Not just Port Alberni, but in a, in a big picture sense. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I, I've heard these things as well. Um, I think it's really too early to speculate and there's not a lot of information to go off of at this point. Um, I think that's the important thing here. We all want these two to be found. Um, we want them to, we want this to come to a peaceful resolution as soon as possible so that we can get those answers. But there's really just nothing we can say at this point. I mean, the there's not enough information out there yet. Uh, is there any police investigation going on in Port Alberni? 
Um, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, it's public knowledge that um, there were some search warrants um, executed here. Um, so we know that, you know, this is naturally going to be a piece of the investigation. But um, I think right now the focus of the entire RCMP is very much on on apprehending the two. And, and that's what we're looking for as well so that we can get those answers. And do you find you're being updated by police adequately? We are getting, you know, as regular updates um, as we can, and certainly we'd all love to have more information. Um, I think that's just very natural at this in a time like this, but we want to make sure that the RCMP are, you know, focused on what we want them to be doing, which is finding the two. So um, we are getting updated, but, you know, there's not always as much um, information shared with us as we're able, as uh, we, we hope there would be. Mayor Minions, are there questions you want answered? Absolutely. Um, I mean, there's there's a ton of questions that that I want answered, just like I, you know, I would imagine the rest of the country. Um, we want to know, you know, what has happened here. I think there's there's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of information being shared around, um, but there's not a lot of facts out there yet. And you know, we are confident that the RCMP are going to apprehend these two hopefully safely um, and then we can all get the information that we're hoping for. Wouldn't be fair of me to not say to you just tell us about Port Alberni because we have to you have to tell us about what a what a great community it is. We need to know. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean, Port Alberni is a wonderful community, and that's, I think, the really challenging thing here. Um, you know, while we recognize that our community has a, a piece in this story, uh, this is certainly not what we want to be known for. Um, so, you know, I think that a lot of the people in our community want to want to hear what has happened um, so that we can so that we can understand but i think people as well are are somewhat uh find it really challenging to be linked to this and and want to defend our community as well that um it is a wonderful place to live a beautiful little community um we don't want this to be the sole thing that we're known for all right mayor Manions, thank you so much for taking the time and i hope life returns to absolutely to normal and and there are lessons to be learned from all of this and uh for for all of us in this country Absolutely. Thank you. All the best. Sherry Minions is the mayor of Port Alberni, British Columbia. Involving times, anxious times for people across the country as the uh, search continues north of uh, Gillam, Manitoba for the two teens who are wanted. Uh, one murder charge, two uh, suspects in the, in the other two charges. And uh, so the question is, how, how is life possible in that uh, bush area in uh, close to Gillum, Manitoba. I think a lot of us have been in like, provincial parks, for example. You get off the trail, you walk among the trees, and after a while you're thinking, where am I? Uh, where did I just come from? I mean, you can get lost in a provincial park with, with, with lots of space between the trees and paths. So what's it like in a real survival situation? Sherman Kong is a survival expert. He's the founder of Maple Leaf Survival in uh, Winnipeg, and you can find them on MapleLeafSurvival.com. Mr. Kong, thank you very much uh, for the time. What, what are they dealing with that's, if they're there, that is posing the greatest challenge? We keep hearing about the bugs. Well, the bugs are certainly uh, going to be a factor, uh, both for the two gentlemen uh, on the run, but also for the search teams looking for them. Um, beyond the bugs, uh, I would say probably at this stage of the game, if in fact they're still there, probably getting pretty hungry. Um, I'm, I'm not really thinking water is so much of a factor, uh, especially if they have certain sources here and there and they have a way to make uh, water safe to drink. 
um, and provided they're properly clothed, I would think that um, as time goes on, again, if they're there, uh, food's going to start to become a consideration, especially considering the fact that it's very difficult and exhausting terrain to navigate. So that'll start to wear them down. Can I just come back to the bugs for a second? Because this is what people talk about a great deal. And, and we hear that these bugs are absolutely intense and can drive people mad. What exactly are you confronted with if you're in that boggy area? What's it like vis-a-vis going into your backyard and being annoyed by mosquitoes? Mosquitoes, horseflies, um, biting flies. Um, some of the bites can be pretty painful. It's nonstop. It's relentless. That is what people are referring to when they reference driving people crazy. Um, it's just nonstop. It's relentless, and, and you can't stop it. So, I mean, if they have some bug netting or clothing that can help deal with that, um, yeah, that might help a little bit, but um, there's really nothing they can do about it. It's it's just literally very uncomfortable, and uh, and, you know, it'll drive someone mad. So, after days in that particular wilderness area, would even a well-prepared person begin to feel the effects? Well, I, I think the thing to keep in mind, um, because I know a lot of people are, are asking questions about, you know, how can they survive in that type of environment and they're still not found, are they still alive? The thing to keep in mind is people continue to shock us every day. They continue to surprise us every day. Things are always impossible until someone comes along and does it. So what we need to think about um, are things from uh, the perspective of probability and not definitively. Um, You know, people with zero survival skills have proven time and time again in a variety of different situations to have lasted uh, and survived some very difficult situations. I mean, it's not a person's skill to survive, it's literally their will to survive. So in previous interviews, you know, I spoke a lot about mindset. I mean, all you have to do is read Les Stroud's book, Will to Live. It's a great compilation of survival stories, harrowing ordeals, um, you know, where the odds are stacked against someone. People are very resilient. I'm not saying that this is the case for for these two guys, Um, but, you know, people survive. Um, So, you know, even with a limited knowledge of uh, basic wilderness survival skills, you know, sometimes that's all it takes, and and, and a little bit of luck. So, yeah, um, but their lives would obviously be very challenging right now. They they would be. Yeah. I mean, again, it's you know, how do they cope with finding you know shelter, water, fire, food if they're on the run? In this case, as I've mentioned before. It's not necessarily your typical survival situation where someone's literally just trying to stay alive and they're staying put, making it easier for rescue teams to find them. In this case, um, you have the added burden of, you know, people looking for you uh, for a very bad reason. So that adds, as I've mentioned before, a whole level of psychology that adds another dimension to this whole situation. Now, that may or may not work against them. Um, You know, it might help them achieve whatever their ultimate goal is. It might push them to stay out there longer. It might start working against them, depending on how their interpersonal dynamics are. Um, so it's it's hard to say, you know, how 
you know what their bond is like at this stage of the game. Right. Well, uh, I'd like I'd like to ask you about that um, yeah. because you teach survival. Do you find that even friends can turn on each other as the stressors of surviving in a hostile environment mount? Well, absolutely. I mean, a person's fight or flight um, instinct is uh, it could be a little bit different from the person that you're with or the people that you're with. Um, but even during some of our courses, when, you know, it comes time to building shelters, you know, sometimes there's there's debates. No, we should build it this way. No, we should build it that way. Uh, so you start to get these little struggles and rifts here and there. I, I would imagine in this case, it's it's quite a few notches more um, because of the because of the situation that they're dealing with. Um, you know, the accusations are, are quite severe. Uh, so I would imagine that's that's really wreaking havoc on them. Or who knows? You know, maybe this their psychological state is, you know, somewhat sociopathic or psychopathic. You know, I, I don't want to speculate, but you know, if if that's the case, you know, maybe they're not suffering uh, the, the same stresses as other people may in the situation. How do you expect this uh, this might end? What does your experience tell you? Well, if they're in the area, um, I would expect that they would probably be found one way or the other. Um, eventually if however they are not there um and again i'm just speculating i don't know you know whether or not they are um but if they start to encroach on more populated areas small towns for resupply for fuel ammunition that kind of thing then things start to become a lot more troubling uh, because then you're dealing with the local populace there's safety concerns um you know people start to become fearful uh, there's a lot of unknowns if they start if, if, for instance, they've made their way into an urban um, center, um, now the question is urban survival, probably along the same lines with the escape and evasion tactics that they're using probably at the moment, if they're still in Gillum, uh, maybe coupled with some tradecraft. They may start to change their appearance, maybe not use credit cards, using cash, not using social media. Uh, not staying in one place too long, maybe traveling separately, but maybe not so far apart that they can't communicate with each other, um, you know, laying low, maybe recruiting someone. Um, there starts to, a whole different range of problems um, start to, a different set of problems present themselves to these, to, to these guys uh, once they start entering an urban environment. So... You know, it's interesting to bring that up because I don't think many of us have actually given that a lot of thought in the last couple of days, that they would have to then become urban area survivors. We've been focusing yeah. entirely on the bush. It's true. I mean, again, we want to think, think of things probabilistically and not definitively, but right. in addition to the things that I mentioned, if for some reason, you know, they find them, you know, they find their way into an urban center or you know, where there's a larger population uh, where they can maybe blend in. But from what I understand, they're pretty tall. So, um, you know, people are probably familiar with their faces. So that's why I'm thinking, you know, if, if they traveled slightly apart, uh, so not to stick out because people would probably be looking for them in pairs, maybe gleaming information um, instead of via social media, maybe just glancing at newspapers as they're walking by with their heads down. Um, versus sitting in an internet cafe and exposing themselves for long periods of time. Right. Taking their time, not rushing. Okay. I mean, when you rush and hurry, it just makes bad things happen faster, okay. making sure no one's following them. All right, Mr. Kong, I have to end it there, but I really appreciate your, your time and very, really informative. Thank you so much. 
It's my pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Sherman Kong is the uh, founder, survival expert, and founder of Maple Leaf Survival in Winnipeg, mapleleafsurvival.com, and they run classes and courses if you want to get involved in uh, survival, knowledge of survival, particularly surviving in the terrible weather of winter. Brian Peckford joins us from the top of the, uh, what mountain are you on in the Peckford Estate, Premier? <laughs> I'm in Nanaimo, <laughs> British Columbia. You own Nanaimo, British Columbia. <laughs> Last time, I, uh, we, we <laughs> you waited 10 minutes to get on the air because I couldn't stop talking. Right. I, couldn't, I couldn't find the off button. And, uh, and, and now you had, I, I admire your patience. You waited while I was talking to Richard Cloutier. Thank you for your patience. Well, that was a very important uh, piece uh, that uh, you needed to put on uh, right away because of the nature of what's happening in the country. And I have to say, in listening to your program this morning and uh, reading up as much as I can over the last few days, as relates to this particular incident now playing itself out in northern Manitoba, uh, I would share uh, and and, uh, agree with you that the amount of information that's coming out is, is is abysmal, uh, and something has to be done about this. This is uh, this is awful. Uh, in 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 the lack of the information coming out, then I went in looking at the maps and of northern Manitoba and so on, and some of the maps that were carried by um, by Global News uh, on their website, because there's three or four communities up there, just not Gillum, and you hardly hear of those. First Nations communities, and then I heard this morning that the First Nations people had issued their own sort of press release about what they were doing to search. So I don't know where the coordination is between the RCMP and the First Nations in in trying to ensure that it's just one central location where the information is disseminated. Uh, There are three hydro dams in the area. I don't know if anybody's mentioned that. Uh, do these dams nearby, because, you know, they built some hydroelectric power up there, three different large uh, hydroelectric dams. Is there other buildings or stuff nearby, those dams, where somebody could hide? Um, you know, just how much railway track have they covered? Uh, that plane that arrived, that Hercules plane, what has it done? That's not privileged information. No, it isn't. And, How and pr- many hours has it traveled? Yeah. Will it travel another number of hours today over another section of terrain? What section of terrain? Uh, I don't understand. No, and, and Premier, we, sh- we should, as you pointed out, we should be told by the RCMP how much ground they have covered in the area, uh, how many officers are engaged. But that's the other thing. How many people are involved in this operation? Well, exactly. We don't know. <laughs> and, and, and given that the First Nations are doing their best to assist, you would think that they would be coordinated within the broader search area to ensure that there's no overlap and so on, but we don't know, even know, and and now I've got to pose the question, you know, is there overlap or isn't there? Because there's two lots of information coming out from two different sources. And there's no reason to suppress information in this case. 
not not that kind of data. That's available. That, yeah. that, that, there's nothing secret or you know, giving away anything for the court case later on, whatever. Right. Well, they, they, they took days to tell us about the surveillance uh, footage that they had, the video footage that they had. Do they have more? From yes, where? I mean, w- one w- of the surveillance videos was in Meadow Lake, Saskatchewan. Yeah, I know. That never yeah. came out until days later. Came out I mean, days later. How, how incompetent is that? You know, and, and why not share that with people? Because one of the, I'll go back to what I said earlier. There's an anxiety level, and you also have to consider children. When the parents are anxious, exactly. or grandparents are anxious, or neighbors are anxious, the anxiety doesn't take a long time to filter down to the five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten year old. Absolutely. And the other thing is, it's just, you know, just a level of frustration. But, you know, a citizen of Canada listening to the news, obviously, there's something going on in my country with which I'm, I'm concerned. Yeah. And uh, I have some some uh, rights to know uh, just exactly. Uh, they give me some comfort that the way this search is proceeding, that it's being done professionally, that it's been done in, in a manner which gives me some security, some sense that, uh, you know, th- things are unfolding in a professional manner. I don't get that at all. No, and uh, there is a border between Canada and the United States. Have they alerted the border? Why isn't this being talked about? I'm assuming they've alerted the border people. I, I'm assuming. But all I can do is provide you, and all we can do as media is provide you the information that we have. And if yep. the information isn't forthcoming, uh, then we can't provide you what we don't have. And if, if, if they, why is the commissioner of the RCM? MP, not holding news conferences on a fairly regular basis. And we have a prime minister who loves to talk, who loves to get involved. He's quiet. Well, I mean, you know, as I'm talking to you now, I'm thinking, and I'm thinking, you know, having a press conference where the maps are put up and you show all of the communities, uh, the Nelson River coming down, where the hydro dams are, where the railway lines are, and where what sections of the railway lines have been covered, what sections haven't and are now going to be covered in the next few days, Uh, you know, the nature of the hydro dams and whether there's any buildings around. The last I heard that there were 100 houses searched. Well, there are 455 buildings in Gillum alone. All we know about is 100. I'm going to have to come to you for information. Yeah, exactly. So this is what I learned in the last uh, few hours because I haven't been able to get it anywhere else. I've had to go online and go to Statistics Canada, go into the uh, census profile and find out just how many buildings are in uh, in Gillum. And I find that there are 455. Then I look up the latest news that I have and it's all to do with 100 yesterday. So when you were the premier of Newfoundland and Labrador, when you were, and you were, a, you were a leading politician in this country, you had a really significant input and impact on politics in Canada. Did you find yourself living through extremely frustrating times because you ran into the fog of indifference? Oh, no, absolutely no question. Absolutely no question. And I'm not, and, suggesting, you know, they're indif- not, I'm not suggesting the RCMP is indifferent. I just, just not communicating. Exactly, exactly. And, and given, you know, that you were in that kind of position, you could quickly get on to somebody and find out what was going on. But the point of it all being is that you need for that information to be getting out to the public yep. whom you are supposed to be serving. Exactly. And if you're giving out a little bit of information, what's stopping you from giving out more? 
Well, and with you, and, and and they know where the line is between sure providing information that the public can use and sure needs to know, sure they do. and no, no, information that, 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 that crosses over into into compromising. what I just said about you know the number of buildings in, in Gillum, the number of communities up along the, the Nelson River, uh, uh, the the hydro dams, the railway lines. We know nothing about what they're doing on all of these fronts. No, we don't. And, and I think that's very sad. And we repeated, and I and I find it frustrating. I do. I find it frustrating. It's part of the story, but we repeat the fact that there are big and many bugs in the bog, in the bush, near Gillum. We understand that now, and we understand wh- how difficult the survival is. We understand that now. They need to provide more substantive information Absolutely. because this. You know, the, yesterday we were talking about the, the the two individuals traveling up to fourteen hundred kilometers over two days. Now, as I said to uh, someone I was speaking with on the air yesterday, for a family traveling on vacation openly on our major highways, that's a that's a big distance. Yep. Over two days. Now, if these two uh, suspects t- traveled uh, 1,400 kilometers over two days, well, give me more information. Yeah, exactly. Give us all more information. Exactly. So, Premier, we've used up all our time. Yeah. The, the other thing, just to finish it off, I mean, most Canadians, uh, most Canadians who travel and go to provincial parks all across the country, we're aware of bugs. We know about bugs. I know. You know <laughs> If that's the end of the information as to what to categorize the kind of bugs that these people might be experiencing, oh my, we have a problem. Uh, those bugs up there, by the way, you saw the drones that were used? Those bugs can take down a drone. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Laughter helps. Premier, thank you so much. Always good talking to you. Thanks for yeah, your time today. Uh, have a great day. You too. Premier Brian Peckford. He's right. He's right. Did you know there were 450 buildings in Gillum? I didn't. Scott New York joins us, former Alberta prosecutor, and uh, he was also the executive director of the Canadian Police Association, professor at Simon Fraser University. I have a bunch of questions for you, Scott. Thanks very much for taking the time. And one of the things I want to talk to you about, and you and I exchanged emails on this, is how do prosecutors prepare for a case like this? But I'd like to start with something else, and that is... With all with with everything that's going on, uh, should we not have? And we've got two active, active, multiple suspected killers on the run. Should we not be getting more updates on a regular basis from the RCMP, updating people on what they have, even if they're repeating themselves, as police will do in the United States? What do you say? Well, um, actually, uh, I don't know that I agree with that because the uh, uh, one of the things that has struck me about this is uh, how much it is in the news. I think that's a feature of the kind of world we live in, but also the frequency of the RCMP updates where, you know, to be candid, I don't think they really say very much. Um, you know, they just sort of repeat that they're still looking for them and that, uh, you know, they think they're in the area. And then a couple of days later, they said, oh, well, maybe they've left the area, you know, uh, in the sense of the they're not being details. There are you I, I very much agree that there are a huge amount of questions about the uh, uh, the deaths that remain unanswered, um, like uh, I mean, these guys, uh, for most of the uh, uh, police releases, they weren't even described as armed and dangerous. They were just described as dangerous. 
So does that mean, was there any suggestion that they had guns before this? See, we have um, more questions than we have answers. Yeah. You know, yeah. How, how much... We still don't know no, how I, it I, was, I, I, was Scott, that the other guy got uh, killed. I got it. Uh, but, but shouldn't we be told how much ground... Like they've covered how many people are involved in the search. How are they doing as far as tips from the public is concerned? All of this kind of information, all this re- information would help people who are anxious about about this well, case. To, to a certain extent, I think they are. I mean, they've identified that they're doing door to doors in the uh, uh, Manitoba town. But we don't uh, see the commissioner of the RCMP giving a news uh, conference, right? Uh, the Cree Nation uh, above and doing the same kind of checks. They've made it clear that there's lots of unoccupied buildings that these guys could be hiding out in. I've seen references to, you know, uh, the numbers of tips. They don't provide any detail, obviously, and this is a challenge because they have to make sure that in no way do they release information that if they catch these guys and are then prosecuting them that could somehow be alleged to have, uh, you know, in effect compromised the independence of the case and whether or not it affected witness uh, testimony. So how, do, how come the Americans can get this done, can provide regular updates, and we don't? From their police chiefs, wouldn't it be appropriate for Commissioner Lucky to be on maybe on a daily or, or twice, uh, well, two or three times a week to be giving the, updates? Uh, the communications spokesperson from uh, the uh, Manitoba Division. I understand that's that. That's where their focus on uh, is, is right now. They, you know, apparently still believe that these guys are likely in the area. Um, originally, if you rem- if you recall, they were uh, being done the same thing by uh, E Division, the the uh, RCMP in British Columbia. Mm-hmm. So I think, given the focus of the RCMP investigation about where it is that they are uh, targeting their activities, that uh, you know this is a relatively routine way in which the RCMP provides information. Not routine for the people of Canada who would well, be looking for. Let me finish. Let me finish. It would be. It would be people from of Canada would be looking for the commissioner of the RCMP to be providing uh, answers and maybe holding a news conference to make people feel better, get the anxiety level down, cut down on the rumors. Uh, it's the, it's the lack of uh, clarity and the lack of certainty that I think has uh, you know caused what you're describing and. Again, you know, we live in this social media world where, you know, people are communicating. I don't know whether you saw this or not, but uh, uh, the RCMP announced a couple of days ago that uh, Facebook has taken down the uh, the two suspects' uh, account. And they're not very happy about that, understandably, because, you know, that's a potential source of getting information about where they might be. Let's get on to the other issue that we were going to talk about, and that when there's a huge national case like this one that's in the media everywhere, people talking about it across the country. Scott, when do prosecutors start to pay attention? When do prosecutors start to look at what their responsibilities may be, what they may do? When do they look at the jurisdictions where a case may be heard? What happens? Well, this is something that has changed uh, over the years, uh, certainly since I was a uh, prosecutor. In fact, in British Columbia, where these homicides are alleged to have occurred, uh, there is now a formal requirement of the, it's in the uh, BC Crown uh, Prosecutor's Manual uh, that the charges before any charges are laid th- by the uh, the police they actually have to be approved by the Crown Office 
and the standard that must be met is that there is a quote substantial likelihood of obtaining a conviction and that the prosecution is in the public interest so literally before anything would ultimately be done in terms of deciding to lay charges which of course would be the case in the the one uh, victim leonard dick uh, the crown will have been involved and in this case in particular from uh, people i've been speaking with uh, there are in fact uh, prosecutors who've been assigned to the uh, to the file and are working with the rcmp not just for the purpose of you know ultimately approving the charges but helping them in making sure that they're, you know, in what they're doing and try, uh, trying to gather evidence will ultimately be admissible in court. So there's some variation on that standard from province to province, and not all provinces have that uh, prosecutor pre-approval. But in British Columbia, where these uh, homicides took place, uh, that is in fact the case. So they will have been um, literally involved from the get-go. So, um, so informally or. I suppose even formally, it's it's underway. The uh, the process for the prosecutors is underway. What determines where the trial is going to be held? Where the offenses uh, are alleged to have taken place. So, if you're talking about the uh, the homicides, they will take place in uh, the trial would take place in British Columbia. Provinces are divided up into judicial districts, artificial um, zones, and each uh, judicial district has a single location within it where superior court trials would take place. And so um, that's what will happen in this case uh, if these guys are brought back and if they are charged as well in the other two murders. The judicial district in which this took place in British Columbia is where the trials will take place. And who lays the charges? It's different in different provinces. Isn't it police or, or prosecutors? It's police who lay the charges, but it's prosecutors who are required to give uh, uh, approval before they can, that can be done. Now, is it too early for prosecutors to start thinking about uh, jury selections and judges they may or may not be working with or for or who may be in charge of the case? Am I getting way ahead of myself if I start to wonder whether prosecutors are looking at those possibilities? Uh, You know, there's uh, different uh, provinces also. Anybody who is charged with an offense where they are facing a penalty of more than five years under the charter has a right to a jury trial. Um, There are lots of instances in different provinces, however, where uh, accused and their lawyers, uh, I think quite uh, wisely, decide not to elect to have a trial by jury, but to have a trial by judge alone. And different provinces have different policies with respect to approving that. Where I was a crown in Alberta, uh, that happened frequently, where the trials were just uh, judge alone. I mean, uh, there definitely were some that I had uh, that were uh, with uh, juries. And, you know, the bottom line of it is uh, it's it's what's known as a trial by your peers, right? It goes back Mm -hmm. to our old, old common law history. Um, And so it's people from within that community, again, it would be within that judicial district, that comes from a database. And that's what's been an important distinction, because uh, in the uh, uh, Clayton Bushy case, if you recall, there were complaints and concerns about where the jurors were coming from, and so there's been some changes. It used to be, for example, you know, uh, years and years ago, that um, only people who own property were deemed to be sufficiently qualified uh, to be on a jury or, frankly, to uh, even be able to vote. In British Columbia, I was looking on the, uh, uh, their list, their, uh, their database. Uh, it's, it's done from the election database, so it's a much broader 
inclusion of people, and that's where the uh, the people will be selected. What happens is you get you get notice that you got to come. You come into a big pool. They put you know your cards into a box. They do the, pick them randomly, and they go back and forth until they have twelve selected jurors. Has anything significantly, you know, the omnibus, omnibus bill legislation uh, or omnibus bills that were passed over the last two, couple of years, has that very directly and, uh, and specifically affected how jury trials, murder trials go forward or, or not? It hasn't affected how the trials will go forward, but it's got some, it removed the what were known as peremptory challenges where you could just say, I don't want that person on the jury and I don't have to give you a reason for it. Now there will be a requirement to actually say, you know, I don't want this person to be on the jury because, you know, they happen to know the accused or they're related to somebody who knows the investigating police officer. And in fact, Roy, on the, the provinces all have a jury act and it lists qualifications or exemptions. So if, for example, you are a peace officer or a firefighter or a judge or a JP, you're not eligible to be a juror. So some of them even have, by the way, in British Columbia as well, too, if I recall, uh, persons convicted of crimes unless they've received a pardon or a record suspension, they're not eligible to be jurors. There's a difference, obviously, between being a suspect and someone who's criminally charged. In the case of these two individuals, they are charged in the case uh, in the death of Mr. Dick, and they are suspects in the uh, the other two um, murders. Now, it also changes what you can and cannot say about them, certainly in a public forum like this. Yeah, and you know, to go back to the point that you made previously about the lack of information, that's the thing that I must admit I find particularly uh, sort of challenging here is that we really don't have any sense of, uh, you know, like why these homicides would have occurred, or I don't think there's even been any identification of how it was that Mr. Dick died, what the, uh, what the cause of death was, and, you know, the, um, um, what the links would be or thought to be with these individuals and the actual uh, deaths themselves. And as you can imagine, the Crown and the police have to be very careful about what they release publicly about that so as to not in any way potentially taint the admissibility of the evidence that they want to use at the trial. So when there's a lot of media coverage, as there is, uh, you know, Understand constant, yeah. is, is there, is there and, and in one case charges have been laid, is there always the opportunity for either the prosecutor or certainly the defense counsel or a judge to say, wait a minute, the impartiality of the justice system has been compromised by this and this report, or not so much? No, I, do, I don't think it would work that way. What you would see instead is, um, if that w- were the case, what it would be is that defense counsel would try to challenge uh, the evidence that was being introduced, the credibility of the evidence being introduced. Like, for example, somebody said that they had some interaction, and it turns out, you know, that uh, they only came forward after the police made some statement about something. So defense counsel could try to make an argument that the evidence wasn't credible and therefore reliable. That's where you would see this stuff play out, actually. Okay, let me change uh, gears entirely here, and I want your thoughts on on a case that uh, played itself out just a couple of days ago in the province of Ontario. 22-year-old Aboriginal woman driving under the influence, three times the legal limit, and the judge in the case 
said, I'm not going to apply the minimum sentence because I find it unconstitutional and it's uh, it will be detrimental to an Aboriginal young woman and her opportunity to live a productive or, or, or successful career life. And so he changed the rules, changed the game. In the province of Ontario, the law doesn't allow that. How, what do you make of that particular case? What do we need to know? I uh, actually tracked down the case because my first reaction was just to roll my eyes and, you know, another example of judicial activism and, and frankly, arrogance. This is actually a little complicated uh, because what the judge wanted to do is something uh, that is actually allowed under the, uh, the at the time the offense, the charges were laid, it was allowed under the criminal code, theoretically. Um, Drunk, the, the drunk driving offense has a expressly stated, in other words, passed by Parliament, uh, mandatory minimum sentence for a first offense or for a second offense. And what the judge was saying was, um, look, that's going to give somebody you know, a criminal record. And what I, I'm not sure that I uh, at all agree with is the focus that the judge put on the, uh, the aboriginal aspect of this because it, it applies to anybody, that you would get a criminal record and that will you know, be a detriment to you and everything else and it's not necessary. And as opposed to, I would like to be able to give the person a conditional discharge, which exists under Section 730 of our criminal code. And basically, you're found guilty, but it's a special kind of a procedure where if it's an absolute discharge, that means fine, you're guilty, but you don't actually have a conviction, so you don't have a criminal record. Or it can be a conditional discharge that uh, you've got to, in effect, serve uh, you know, a term of probation, and if you do it successfully, then although you're uh, guilty, you're not convicted and you don't have a criminal record. So that's a, a tool that is theoretically available, but in the law it also says it's not available on offenses where there's a mandatory minimum sentence, which would be the impaired driving, except that a, a number of years ago the law was changed and a provision was introduced to actually say that um, it was under sec then Section 255, subsection 5, that said that um, even though there was a mandatory minimum sentence, the court could order a discharge, in other words, no criminal And I have about 20 seconds, if Scott. If the person was participating uh, in a, uh, you know, in effect, a uh, drinking rehabilitation program. The twist to that, though, was that the programs had to be put in place by the provinces, and if the province didn't put in place a program, which Ontario didn't, right. then that means that the person couldn't qualify for the discharge. Okay. And that's at the core of what this judge decided is unfair. Okay, I gotta go. But thanks so much, really, always. Scott York, former Crown Attorney. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.